ahead and pray, and then we're going to jump into our series on John. So let's pray. Father, uh, I just pray that at all times we would be able to mix our prayers with thanksgiving, that uh, no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what we feel like we need, that we'd always be able to see little, little things that you are doing in our lives or in the lives of those around us or um, within our community even, and that we would be able to see those things and rejoice and know that you are there, you are a God who is not silent, and that we'd be able to praise you because of that. And so, Father, I just pray that you'd open our eyes to see the various things that you're doing and that we'd be able to celebrate. And we pray that in Christ's name. Well, this morning we're in John chapter 7, so if you want, you can turn there. It's going to be on the screen as well. But John chapter 7, and uh, the last several weeks when we were in John 6, we went really, really big picture with it. And today I want to kind of go to the opposite end of the spectrum and just pick one little thing out of John 7 here and talk about it a little more at length. But let's read starting in verse 1. It says this, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. Um, This has nothing to do with this, but I just, it seems like a timely thing to say. Um, I was watching a documentary uh, yesterday, Constantine Sword, good documentary, James Carroll did it. Uh, James Carroll was a former priest in the Catholic Church, uh, was disillusioned, kind of did this video about the relationship between the church historically and, and Jewish peoples, and the, the crazy things that went on with that, okay? Um, and we need to be careful sometimes. What was fascinating is there was Throughout history, there's been a phrase, Christ killers, that's been used of, of the Jewish people. You guys are Christ killers. Um, and, and so it was a pretext, for, uh, a pretext for abuse or for killing them or persecuting them because they were Christ killers. Uh, horrible thing. If you, if you don't know it, John Paul IV, back in the 1500s, instituted the first Jewish ghetto in Rome. So if, if you think of the Nazis and the Jewish ghettos and things like that, they didn't create that. The church created that starting in Rome, locked them all up into an area with one gate that was locked at night, and it was the Jewish ghetto, and they had to listen to Catholic preaching uh, every single week, and they weren't allowed to own property, and on and on and on. And that existed till the 1870s, over 300 years, the Jewish ghetto. So like, you know, the Nazis come along, they didn't create that stuff. They really, in some sense, took it from the church. And, and there's just a whole dark side of the church. Why I bring that up here is when we're reading John, who John lived in kind of Asia Minor at the, at the back end of his life, and that's where he would have written this book. And so he's, he's outside of, of uh, Israel, writing to a non-Jewish group. And so how's his language going to look? He's like, this is what's going on. These, those people... A lot of the Jewish leaders were trying to kill Jesus, who was a Jew. And so the Jewish leaders are trying to kill Jesus, but you need to go down to where? Judea. And so when we read this, we've got to realize um, it's set in a context, and John, who is writing this, himself is a, a Jew. And so he's not using that phrase as 
these people, all these people are bad or Christ killers. And by the way, in Vatican II, um, Vatican II, they actually put in there that we are not allowed to use the phrase Christ killers of the Jewish people. And so it's a little known thing in Vatican II that never really came out publicly. And so there's still like just a lot of debate and stuff swirling around that. But, but it's when you read John, we got to understand the context of John and that when we see the word Jew, John is a Jew talking about Jews. It's not a, a pejorative term about the whole ethnic group. And so I think when we don't realize that, we can read along and be like, oh man, it's just really harsh the way he's talking about it. No, he's not. He's, he's talking about those people were trying to kill this guy who is a Jew, I'm a Jew, and he needed to go down to Judea to talk to who? The Jewish people. Does that make sense? It's nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but um, it's, it's important that we, these are cultural issues out there today that we're, we're talking about and that are all around us, your friends, your neighbors, whatever, and we just need to understand how to maneuver in and out of them. Anyways, <laughs> sorry. Um, all right, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. Their logic is pretty clear. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world for even his own brothers did not necessarily believe in him. So it's pretty clear. You want to be a celebrity? Well, you need to go out and get on the stage. You, you need to be uh, visible to people. They need to see what's going on. Um, what are you doing up here, man? The game is in Jerusalem. It's in Hollywood. Uh, anyone that wants to be a movie star, where do you need to go? You need to go to Hollywood. And, and his, his brothers are like, hey, man, you want to be a movie star? Well, we're not really certain if you're going to pull it off or not. But if you're going to, you need to go down to Hollywood. You've got to go to Judea. You've got to get on the stage. And there's logic to what they're saying. And listen to how Jesus answers them. He says, The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going to this feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. For you, any time is right. You want to be an actor in, in Hollywood, when should you go? Now. Right? I mean, when you're thinking humanly, the right time is, is now. And Jesus says to them, yeah, you guys see things very, very culturally, very worldly. And, and for you, any time is the right time, but it's not the right time for me. My time has not yet come. The fascinating thing is, a couple verses later, Jesus goes. So it's, it's really an interesting passage because Jesus doesn't just say no outright. He just goes at a different time and in a different way than they end up going. And so he says, you know, there's a logic. I have a logic all my own that comes from the timing that God has for me. I follow him. He makes the right time known. It's not look at the clock seven days before the feast. You know, now's the time when you should start traveling. So what I want to talk about this morning is just simply that issue of time, of God and time, because I think that it's a huge, huge topic that doesn't get necessarily talked about a lot. My contention is that time is like the soil out of which kind of everything else grows. 
I read on CNN.com this morning um, a study by a, a massive group out of Paris rated all the, the uh, democratic countries in the world according to happiness. Um, and you'll be pleased to know that the United States wasn't even in the top ten, right? I don't And I think it has to do with time. Our sense of urgency and time and hurry and rush and, and anxiety and all that, it, it's down here. And I think happiness is affected by that. Faith, if you want to talk about faith, you have to talk about time. Why? If you're driving a car 60 miles an hour at a brick wall, and you're like, okay, God, you've got to open a door, what does the anxiety really come from? It, it doesn't necessarily come from can God open a door or not? It comes really from, will God open the door in time or not? Because if I hit that wall going 60 miles an hour, everything's going to be shipwrecked, right? So it's not, can God open doors, theoretically. It's, in my life, I'm screaming at a brick wall. Is God going to open a door for me in the right amount of time before my whole life gets destroyed. So the interesting thing about most of the topics in Christianity is, is that they all have this time element that's like the soil. And so we talk about happiness, we talk about joy, or we talk about faith, or we talk about patience, or we talk about faithfulness, we talk about all these things. Forgiveness has a time component. And we never really talk about what it is that time does to these different issues. And so this morning, let's just talk about it a little bit. The first thing is this. God's timing can be counterculture. In talking about time, God's timing can, can often be counterculture. I learned this um, pretty quickly the first trip to Africa. Um, they have this thing called Africa time. Or at least they talk about it when they're talking to Westerners. Um, because they're, they're, we're on a totally different time, like, than they are. And, you know, they would start church in, in different places early in the morning. And, you know, you show up anytime between like 8 and 11, just whenever. You know, church goes half the day and they'll, they'll be singing and praising. And, you know, just whenever you show up kind of thing. And, and when, whenever you show up can be three hours worth of time. And we're looking at it like, man, do I get there at a quarter till or at ten till? You know, and I got to get the kids in. I got to be there by the first song. And so what happens is you get over there and everyone radically understands that there's a difference in time. Now, is one better than the other? I don't know. It's fascinating. I thought, wow, I like Africa time better. And then I was talking to a guy from Africa and he was like, I hate Africa time. And I was like, why? He's like, we can't, you know, one of the reasons our, our culture is so poor is that we can't industrialize and the reason we can't industrialize and really produce things is because we, we we don't run on time the way you guys do and we can't get consistency that way and I was just like wow it's an interesting perspective um, so I don't know which one's right but the thing is is culture begins to affect time okay and we in America have a, our own kind of view of time and and I would say we're builders in America, we're builders. Everything starts low and, and needs to gradually get bigger and better and bigger and better until you die with, with all your stuff, okay? And in John, when we started in John chapter 1, 
I was preaching a sermon about John the Baptist and I said, you know, the interesting thought in reading about John the Baptist is that when Jesus comes on the scene, his job is over. His whole job was to prepare the way. Jesus comes and then he says, you must become greater, I must become lesser. And basically at that moment, his job was over. God gave, and the sermon was called Dead End Jobs. God gave John the Baptist a dead end job, which means it had a purpose up until a point, and then it was over. And then, then what? What do you do with your life when your calling ends? And what do you do with a dead end job? I mean, it's just, it's just a hanging question that's out there. And we Americans can't think in terms of dead-end jobs. If God's really blessing my life, everything will start low and end high. He'll continue to bless, continue to bless, continue to bless. I'll never go back, and my value or usefulness will not just end. It should only grow. And so God's timing is really counter-cultural um, to us Americans. I was talking to a friend this week uh, who's going through the process of bankruptcy. And the, the, the struggle there, as this, this friend of mine who's an incredible, um, incredible guy, but as a Christian and, and husband, father, all that, as he's struggling with this and trying to lead through it, there's a real interesting thing. My blood, my sweat, my tears, my energy, my building into... Uh, my house and my life I don't understand it because I poured so much in and now it just hits a dead end does that make sense our, our view of timing has a hard time with that and, and the beauty of this guy is he knew to kind of struggle beyond that and say my internal sense of timing based on culture is not the way that God really works and so the verse he's hanging on to right now is is out of Proverbs do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. I don't understand it because it all seems like it's just hitting a brick wall. Like it's, it's all that work was for a dead end. Yet I need to just follow and, and put one foot in front of the next and trust you, God, that your sense of timing has a purpose that, that might not fit my cultural understanding. Does that make sense? Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. Because God's timing can often be countercultural. Second thing is this, God's timing can often be counterintuitive. Very similar to the first thing. We're playing chicken with reality. We're going 60 miles an hour at a brick wall. And there's fear and there's anxiety that exists there. And we think if God was really there, he would be working in our lives such that fear and anxiety wouldn't have to be a part of our daily diet. It doesn't seem like what God would want to produce in our belly to bring about the right kind of life. And what we begin to realize is we intuitively think that circumstances ought to be the soil for which all the good things come out. If, if I can have the absence of fear, the absence of anxiety, it will create the conditions that I will be able to live with serenity 
and to live with this graciousness that just permeates everything I do, and to live with this joy and this shine and this glow, that's, that's the, the, the soil or the foundation that would give rise to these things. And we're thinking humanly or intuitively that as humans, those kinds of things in our belly would give rise to these kinds of emotions or, or states of being. And what God is, is doing with us is he's saying, I don't want you to live a wonderful human life. I want you to live a wonderful spiritual life. That it's not the necessary outflow of human conditions that puts a certain kind of look on your face. But it is the presence of my Holy Spirit in you. It's my working in you or being in you or with you despite the circumstances that that mixed together with that rocky soil or whatever else is going on in the fear and the anxiety will still produce counterintuitively that joy or that shine or that peace or that love or that grace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Good. Why does Jesus talk about the fruit that can only come from those that are good and they've been made good by God? It only happens not humanly, but spiritually. And so what God is doing in our life is kind of, with timing especially, is counterintuitive to how we would map it out. And he wants his presence and his working with us to bring about a set of circumstances that could only happen if we are depending on him. It's counterintuitive. It's an interesting thing. Um, I think we go through life and we've got our faith here and circumstances will come over here and they'll look random and confusing and counterintuitive. And then they come over here and they look sovereign. Oh man, I'm going to spell this wrong. Anybody help me out? Sov I at the end here, sovereign. Okay. Um, I think what happens is when events look random to us bankruptcy losing our house losing our job um, having a relationship go south whatever it is that, that really puts the pressure on us and pressure exists in time and it seems random we begin to on, the, on the, the scales here, we begin to have a, what I would call a deistic faith. God might exist. God might have created me. God might be over everything, but he's very distant, and he doesn't work in individual circumstances. God is far, far away. And then I think when things look sovereign, and by that, by that I mean they begin to look like they're planned, or what, what Tamara and I call coincidences with a capital C. When you begin to see God work in your life, the fingerprints. Uh, um, Ed, Ed Underwood, who was here last week, said, uh, timing is God's signature on events. Timing is God's signature on events. And when they begin to look planned, we begin to have an easy time calling God by this name. And so... The things that come into our life and, and working in and out of our life 
kind of tip our faith back and forth. And if it seems random, we begin to put God very, very, very far away. And just he's a, he's a watchmaker that just wound up the world and then walked away. And if things begin to look really cool, like we get on the, the God bandwagon and we're telling everybody, man, like we're, we're doing that stupid, obnoxious Christian stuff. Somebody just died. Oh, wow. Well, just God will get you through it. Um, you know, wow, you're, you're going through bankruptcy. God has a plan for your life, you know, and we, because we're so excited about all the things we see God doing, we, we kind of get blinded by that, and, then, and that just permeates everything, and, and there's a whole separate issue there about maturity and how we communicate with other people, but we begin to see, you know what, no matter what it is, God works all things for good for those who have been called according to his purposes. So our faith really teeters back and forth based on the circumstances coming into our life. And why? Because we think what we really want is this ultra-spiritual life where everything is falling into place and we feel super good. And we really think that has to do with circumstances. So when circumstances are going right and it's easier and more natural humanly to kind of produce these cool things, we get super excited. And then when the flow seems to be turned off, it's harder for things to grow and we begin to get frustrated because we feel like God's not holding up his end of the bargain because we really have a programming issue up here that says God has to work intuitively with us in the boundaries of time. The interesting thing, there's a, one of the old Catholic mystics from way back when, St. John of the Cross, wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul. And I think it was his insight is profound, and, and I, I really have always thought it was profound. But the dark night of the soul, what St. John of the Cross said is, when you first begin your relationship with God, what motivates you or, or moves you is the sweetness that comes from God's presence. And he says, eventually, as you mature, there'll be a season, and it's a lot like Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There'll be a season when you don't get to feel that same sense of satisfaction anymore. Where it feels cold, where it feels lonely, where it feels dark. That's the dark night of the soul. And he, he St. John of the Cross, talks about God uses this to refine what's going on in your soul. So that your commitment to God becomes not dependent on your feelings or your emotions but it becomes dependent on who he is and who you know him to be, that your faith really gets refined in that. And that you're going to lock on to him regardless of whether right now, at this moment, it's random or sovereign. That your faith is, exists outside of circumstances. I think there's a lot to be said there. David and Saul, I'll, I've got it on the board, but if you turn to it real quick. First um, Samuel 13 this is uh, what happens with Saul. And remember, Saul's the first king of Israel, and he's big, and he's buff, and he can fight, and he's all these things. And this is what happens. Um, he, he's ready for battle, and Samuel says, I'm going to show up. And um, I didn't put that part on there, so I should probably turn back. But Samuel says, I'm going to show up and give the offering. I've got to give the offering so that God will bless our endeavors in war here, right? And... Saul is there with his army. They begin to get afraid. And guys begin to start leaving um, because they're afraid. And so it's fraying at the edges in time. 
Saul is, is going 60 miles an hour at a brick wall and he's, he needs the door to open. Here he is, he can't go to battle yet. God hasn't blessed it. You know, the, the prophet hasn't come and people are beginning to leave. So what does Saul do? Saul doesn't exist in faith. He takes matters into his own hands and says, I, I gotta you know, use a machine gun like, what was that movie, uh, Sahara? Or something like that you know they're, they're driving at a wall and they shoot it with machine guns so they can just punch through and Saul's like man I got to take matters in my own hands and so he even though there's blood on his hands it's like David can't build the temple for God God waits and lets Solomon build it because David's a man of war you know here's this man of war the king who's not supposed to give the offering to God He's supposed to wait for the prophet the man of God and he takes matters into his own hands and he says okay let's do it he, he gets it all going right when he's done with that who shows up? Samuel shows up. And Samuel says to him, what have you done? And Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against us and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. So I felt compelled. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have been established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So Saul's in this situation where time is an issue and he listens to time and feels compelled to act. Instead of trusting God like, man, I, I've got to wait on the Lord no matter how much the pressure cooker comes. And God says, you're not the right kind of guy for me. So in first, we don't have a verse here. From first Samuel um, chapter 22, we pick up David and, um, and we see the whole story go. And then in, in chapter 23, David gets hemmed in at this town. I'll just tell you the story. How's that? Um, David gets hemmed in. And Saul, Saul immediately seizes on it. He's like, man, this is perfect. David's in a town. I can surround it. Or Saul. Yes, yeah, Saul. I'm sorry. Saul says, David's in a town. I can surround it. And then I can cut him off. And then I've got him. Because Saul knows that David is the guy that's supposed to replace him. And he wants to kill him. I mean, Saul just goes off the deep end, right? Goes crazy. So Saul knows David's trapped. Saul's on his way. He's going to surround him. What do you do if you're David? What's the human thing to feel compelled to do time is of the essence every minute you waste is one more or more minute where you're going to be, be trapped and cut off right so what would David now be compelled to do the same way Saul when he was put in the pressure cooker was compelled to do something David's going to be compelled to give this order right off the bat um, make ready we're leaving saddle up your horses sooner we get out of here the better we're, we're like sitting ducks here and instead of giving that order David halts calls for the priest says come we need to seek the Lord's counsel I mean it's fascinating and you see that kind of behavior throughout David's life but he waits when time is of the essence and he says I'm gonna have faith here and I'm gonna seek God's counsel and I'm going to do what God says to do. And God says, yep, leave. <laughs> David's like, okay. And he acts in faith. And so you see this real difference between Saul and between David. Saul lets time 
dictate his decisions. David always takes his decisions to God and says, it's not what I feel or what I think, it's what you say and how you lead that's going to determine my course of action. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. The third thing is this, God's timing is just plain not our timing. Jesus is getting good worldly advice. You're supposed to be a big shot, go to, go to Hollywood, but it's not the right advice. God's timing, God, God is sovereign, God knows, God's going to do things that, that are not going to make sense to this world. It's not going to make sense to you sometimes, or your family, or your friends, or your community. God's timing is not our timing. And time like money has that, that, that quality to it where it can either drive you away from God or it can drive you to God. It drove Saul away from God. It drove David to God. So the question really becomes, why do we hide from God? Why do we hide from God? I think it has to do with timing. I think the reason that we typically try to give a little bit of, um, yeah, yeah, I know you're there, God, and I'll sing you some worship songs, and I'll kind of do some things to, that ought to make you happy with me, but I don't want to hear what you have to say to me. I'm scared, don't talk to me. I'm scared about you talking to me. Why? Because God's purposes might not be the same as our purposes for our life. God might call us to a dead-end job. God might call us to shut everything down right when it was beginning to go well. God might tell you something that you don't want to do, and that scares you. There's, there's a sense of time. Because why? Why does that bother you? Because if God tells us to do something that we don't want to do, our life is so short that we have this sense that it will waste time. I know what I want for my life, and what I want for my life is to be successful. And I don't have time to deviate for five years, 10 years, 15 years, going on a wild goose chase, following God, doing, doing who knows what, God knows what. And, and so I don't want to hear God's orders because it might take me down this road. And man, I got just enough time to really try and fight like mad to be successful. So I don't want to listen to God. His purposes might not be the same as my purposes. And, and my life is valuable. I won't trust my time to God. I won't give him control of my time, my life. So we're scared to talk to God. See, we're big on writing checks and then expecting God to cash them. You know, I, I'm a big fan of uh, Ephesians where it says, God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. He can do more than your dreams, your vision, your big ideas. I love that verse, but here's how it gets abused. God, use me to change the whole Congo from Ben. I'm not even going to go live in the Congo, but you can do it. From Bend, Oregon, you can use me to change the whole Congo because you're big enough. And there are people that have committed their lives to living there that know you, you spend a whole life to change just a little, just a few people. You know what I mean? Long-term development. And that there's political issues that are going to last for generations and generations and generations. And, and we just... 
sometimes as Americans take and hide behind verses like that, I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. And then we paint some picture that's so global in scope that it's just, it's ridiculous. Do you know that Jesus said no to healing people? He did. He went on a mountain to pray one night after he'd healed a bunch of people, and then the next morning his disciples find him, and, he, and they say, you know, we've got to go heal. There's a line. They're waiting again. And Jesus says, no, we've got to go preach the kingdom. Sorry. I, I, we have to keep going. And he doesn't go heal those people. Jesus didn't make every blind man see. He made some see. Jesus even said, look, you will always have the poor with you. You can't eradicate poverty. This is a, a broken, sinful world. You're supposed to, to be light in darkness and to help people that are poor that need you to speak up for them, right? The disadvantaged, the, the oppressed, all these things. It's, oh man, we've got to look at this verse, by the way. This isn't something to do with what we were talking about. But anyways... Listen to this, um, 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. It says this, all those, so David's running from Saul. He's running, he's on the run. And it says this, all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, it's fascinating that Jesus is supposed to be the next David, the Davidic king and David, man, all the riffraff just rallies around him, the poor, the needy, the disadvantaged, the oppressed. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and who gathers around him? The same thing. And we're supposed to say something to the poor situations, right? But poverty as a category will always be here. We can do something in the Congo. Can we make the Congo utopia as if there's no sin there? As if there's no history there? As if there's no pain there? We, we hide behind these verses of, of like, you know, God can do all this, so let me just, and it's lazy. It's, it's a lazy dream. And am I really committed to being used by God to actualize that dream? Man, there's some deep questions going on there. But what's amazing is it's got a very American timing to it. We're big on writing checks and expecting God to cash them, right? Instead of saying, God, what's your dream for my life? tell me what your dream for my life is it's like you know what my glory and my success would be so amazing if I was the one to change the whole condo God I'm going to claim that prayer because you're big enough to build my glory I uh, was looking at Barnes and Noble it caught my title seriously I don't read books like this on a regular basis but it was like walk by, it's interesting. There's a history book called The 48 Rules of Power. And um, I was like, that's really interesting. This historian guy like assembles like from all culture, like what are the rules of power? I was like, that's really interesting. So I just turned to the table of contents. So I don't want you thinking like I'm reading 48 <laughs> Rules of Power. But the, the um, rule number one was um, never, never outshine or, or upstage the master. And I thought, you know what? That's a great rule for us as Christians. It's about God's glory, not about my glory. And if I'm going to start with God's glory, it's like, God, how do you want to use me with, with my life, the short life that I've got? Not, what's the biggest dream that will make me the coolest guy? Now, God, you have to cash that check. Um, I've always thought that this health and wealth gospel thing was really um, 
strange. The health and wealth gospel really says, the more I follow God, the more blessed I'm going to be. And it's the formula that began in the Old Testament. The formula. If you obey God, he will bless you. And by the time we get to the wisdom literature books, Ecclesiastes and Psalms, you know, they really begin to grapple with, you know what, it's not that clean cut. Um, you can obey God and, and man, life is still messy. And some people that cheat get ahead and man, that just really sucks, right? And the health and wealth gospel, which is kind of a modern American thing again, is this whole idea of like, you know what, it's really hard to get ahead. Let me just, you know, obey God more and, and he'll just slap this abundance on me. It's the guys on the TV that are looking for a lot of money. You know, God's given me $2 billion in the last, you know, 10 years. Be like me. Well, the reason you have $2 billion is because you're manipulating, you know, little old ladies to give you money that they shouldn't be giving you, you know. Um, that's why you're a charlatan. That's why you have all that money. It's not that if you obey God, all of a sudden your bank account's going to grow. Um, Jesus has called us to suffer as much as he's called us to do anything else. And what's fascinating to me is this health and wealth gospel. And the biggest thing that I, I've seen that, that makes me question that is, is the 40 years that the Israelites had to spend in the desert. What would it have been like, especially for us as Americans, to all of a sudden be time machined back to it being an Israelite? You're like, oh, this is cool. Like, Pharaoh, this, that, and then all of a sudden you go, oh, oh, shoot. I know what comes next. I'm going to die in the desert. That is God's plan for my life. He's given me a dead-end life. And by the way, we all have dead-end lives, okay? Um, but he's given me a dead-end life. Man, my glory, my, my success, my big dreams that God was supposed to cash for me. His sovereign plan is for me to die in the desert. How do I still live a faithful life? Man, talk about a question. If you knew that God had given you a desert life, you're going to die at age 65, 70, 80, whatever, 90, but it's not going to be blessed all along. It's going to be misery, misery, and more tears. And if you knew that, would you still be able to love God? Would you still be able to trust God if you had a desert life? I mean, that question is so anti-American, isn't it? What's amazing is that the slaves in the South, in that dark chapter of American history, had an amazingly rich faith. Culturally, if you go to an African-American church, do you know why they dress up culturally? And there's probably a lot of reasons, but it... it it stems from all the way back in, in the, the churches in the South. That was the day that you were allowed to dress up as slaves and go to church and seek God and, and dressing up and, and taking this serious. There's an amazing power that comes in African-American churches. And these Negro spirituals, you know, that, that worked away into Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches and things like that are amazingly powerful. And when they're talking about um, swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. What are they talking about? They're talking about a deliverance that doesn't necessarily equate to um, next week I'm being delivered from slavery. They're, they've got a hope 
that no matter what, when Christ comes back or when they die, that he's going to come and take them and carry them home to a place where there's no longer going to be any suffering, no longer going to be any tears, where time is not going to put you in this pressure cooker, and it will be good, and that's where utopia is. It doesn't necessarily have to be in this life. And they look to God and say, God, I can't wait till that day because this is misery. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. God scooping down, like in the Old Testament, the story, and in a chariot, um, taking the prophet and carrying him home. They had a faith, and yet they were in, a, in, in some sort of a desert life where there was no promise that they were going to have success at the end. Or that God was going to cash all these big checks. I wonder what the health and wealth gospel could say to somebody living in the early 1800s in, uh, in the South. It doesn't even speak the right language. It only takes root with us when we're pursuing our own glory. And we're going to use God as a means to our own ends. God's timing is not our timing. I love Rick Warren and I love the five purposes. I think we abuse them. His five purposes aren't wrong. How we apply them is wrong. And Rick Warren, if, if you've read The Purpose Driven Church or Purpose Driven Life, does a great job of boiling it down. Church is about worship. It's about um, connecting with a church family. It's about beginning to use your, uh, I've got them out of order. Worship's the last one. But it's about um, like connecting with a church family, growing in Christ, finding your gifts to be able to do ministry, going out and sharing the gospel with other people, missions, and helping the poor, and then worship, those five purposes. And every single one of those purposes is something that God has for you to go do in this world. That's not about you at the center. But look at how we, we do this. The first thing, like connect to a church. We make it about us. It's a community club. And how ridiculous is that? I mean, have you ever gone up to somebody and met them and gone, you know, glad to meet me? You know, it's, you're meeting somebody else. It's about us and we, not about me, yet we turn it into, how is this community meeting my needs, my felt needs? Second thing is spiritual growth. And we want to read a bunch of things and study a bunch of things, and it's all about learning so that I can grow when the truth of it is the way we grow is by loving. Jesus made it abundantly clear with his disciples. You want to obey my commands and, and by doing that grow and mature? Here's my command, love one another. You go make other people more important than your own satisfaction and you'll begin to grow spiritually. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do that. Obey that command. You'll grow and you'll mature. We think growth is all about um, fun or nice or book, club. book clubs aren't bad, right? But we get so caught up in the things that we enjoy, we make it about us. Serving, finding my ministry. <laughs> How many of you are signing up for a dead-end job? To some of you, that might feel like the nursery. Man, I'm signing up for a dead-end job, you know. How many of you are going, I want the job that's a dead-end job where God just is going to put me to serve? We Americans come in and say, ooh, what's the coolest job that would be the most fulfilling? Because we're all about self-actualization and fulfilling. And, and you know, a lot of the jobs that God wants you to do, if we listen, are about sacrifice and service. It's what's amazing about Mother's Day. I used to think, like when I was a kid, there's a Mother's Day, there's a Father's Day. How come there's not like a, a child's day, like a kid's day? Like it's not, I want breakfast in bed, you know? And, 
And what I began to realize is 364 days out of the year is kids' day. That's why there needs to be a Mother's Day. Because being a mother is a call to suffer. It is. If you become a mom, you will suffer and you will sacrifice and you will know hurt and you will know pain. It's a necessary component. Are we willing to sign up for some things that we know it's the right thing, yet there's a suffering component, a sacrifice component? Evangelism, well, there's really no way to make that about ourselves, so that's why we don't do it. And, and then the last thing is worship. Music's got to be the certain volume. I like this music, not that music. I like the sax. I don't like the sax. I, you know, what, what feels right to my sensibilities with music? Forget the very fact that music has nothing to do with it. Worship in the Old Testament was about bringing an animal, slitting its throat, having it burned in front of you as a reminder that your blood is demanded of you because we're sinners. And that animal takes your place. That's worship. And, it's, and not only that, but that's a sacrifice because, man, that's a valuable thing that you are giving and saying, man, I'm giving back to you, God, because you are more important. We don't ups, upstage our master. Because you are more important, whether it's money or time or energy, the things we offer back to God remind us where we fit in this thing and who takes care of us. Worship is this Monday through Sunday thing. It's not the half hour we spend in music. Now, it's wonderful that God allows for us to do that, the arts. It's like a prayer language. I mean, you know, the emotions and being able to sing these things is a wonderful experience. It's not the sum total of worship. So we take Rick Warren's five purposes, which are five purposes, but we miss the fact that we make them all serve ourselves. We Americanize them. We put them on our time scale and to meet our ends. And we're scared to death of giving God control of our time because he might take it and use it for something other than our own glory or our own success. It scares the death out of us. Here's some things I think we need to do if we're going to if we're going to act according to God's time. And the first one is this. We need to look for instructions, not answers. We need to look for instructions, not answers. His ways are higher than our ways. God cannot give us the final answer on everything that he's doing and why he's doing it. And he never said that he would. So if we're going to live by faith, we look for his instructions in the near future, not his global answers while we're sitting in the lazy boy. Howard Hendricks gave me the picture of, of the Holy Spirit, and I love it. Um, I was listening to a tape many years ago, and he says, the Holy Spirit's like headlights on a car driving on a mountain road at night. And you see 100 yards in front of the car. And if you keep following that 100 yards, guess what? You can get to your destination even though you don't see it. And we need to learn to ask for instructions, not for answers. God, show me 100 yards in front of me. The second thing is a part of that. It's... Um, it's being able to say yes when you see those instructions. We have to create muscle memory around the idea of saying yes to whatever God says. Uh, one of the best books I ever read on prayer is by Dallas Willard. It's now called Hearing God. One of the best books I ever read on prayer. The other one's by Madame Guyon called Experiencing God Through Prayer, if you guys are interested in reading about prayer. But in this book, Hearing God, Dallas Willard says this, and it, and it changed my life. He said, you know the interesting thing about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit doesn't argue with you. 
And I thought back through my life and I was like, you know what? He's exactly right. When I get a sense or my conscience convicts me, I can always out-argue it. I can always out-argue it. I must have won because I don't hear anything else. So then I go my way. Holy Spirit, God says to you what to do and he expects you to say yes. If you argue back, he doesn't say, well, let me out-argue you. He says, you're starting off completely wrong. I'm going to be silent until you stop again and listen. I'll say it one more time. I expect that you'll do it. I don't have to tell you my reasons or out-argue you, which is about rationality, right? Giving you reasons. I expect when I move in you or when you feel that prick of conscience or when you, in your gut, know that there's something you ought to do, that you would just say yes. You would do it. The Holy Spirit doesn't argue. I mean, think of your own life. We have to cultivate the discipline, the muscle memory of just saying yes, no matter how much it scares us. The last thing here is that we have to build a rhythm of listening to God. Um, Blake, in one of his poems, says, we're ever seeing with and not through the eye. We see things humanly. We don't really step back and see things big picturely. Does that make sense? And so we allow things to scare us rather than step back and see it through faith. We... We look uh, with or through, with and not through the eye. And we need to be able to step back and be able to package this thing and to get God's perspective on stuff. And how does that happen? It happens with creating a rhythm where we're gonna listen to God. Best thing you can do is turn off the radio in the car when you're driving to work every day. Learn to start praying out loud. Teach you to pray quicker than anything else. If you pray out loud, your mind won't wander. You also feel really weird when you pull up to stoplight and there's someone there, but hey, that's okay. Um, but learn to start praying out loud. Create reminders. The whole idea of touchstones in the Old Testament and all these festivals and seasons was to remind people about God. Create your own reminders. Set your watch to have a chime. Tie a, a ring around your finger. When I worked at a Christian camp, I, I did that with my watch to chime every hour on the hour. Revolutionized my life for about four weeks, five weeks until I didn't even hear the chime anymore. And then I realized I got to come up with something new. But build things into your life that create a rhythm. Drive to work a different way. It don't mess you up. Just drive to work a different way. But in the messing you up, go, you know what? That has to remind me that I normally just get into my own thing, listen to my own radio, think my own thoughts. And I want to break from that paradigm. And I want to begin to listen to what God's saying. I don't want to keep talking about, to God about what I need for my circumstances. I want to listen and hear what his instructions are. The conclusion is just simply this. Um, some of you might feel like you've been caught in a riptide. Here's the thing with a riptide. You've done everything right. You're a good person. You've tried to make good decisions. You've prayed all along. You've assessed risk. You're only 20 feet out in the ocean. You, you haven't been a bad person. But all of a sudden, you just got pulled way out to sea. You got caught in a riptide. And the circumstances of this, this right now, what's going on economically or what's going on with you personally or spiritually or relationally, has just sucked you out into the ocean and you are panicked. Why? Because is God going to rescue me or save me before I drown? I mean, there's an urgency to time. It's a riptide. And so you're frantic, and it's real. It's as real as it gets. And I, I would just counsel us to, to take this one thing to heart. 
and that's something I, I wrote down and I shared with the elders this week, but comfort does a great job of, of building orthodoxy. Comfort does a great job of building orthodoxy. When we have a comfortable existence, truth will run really deep. The church, when persecution, back in the 300s, when persecution was removed, orthodoxy really came about because now we could think deeply about things, okay? Comfort does a great job of building orthodoxy, not martyrdom. Not martyrdom. And as much as the drowning and the urgency feels like a problem, we have to recognize that God's timing is counterintuitive. And we need to say, um, God, I'm willing to see this as an opportunity. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot produce life. God, I'm on the ground and my hole is cracked. Do you want this to be a dying moment where my pain gives life to something else? Do you want me getting wiped back to zero to be an opportunity to go a different direction or to start over and to be a different person, to, to do a different calling that you've got for me? This, this thing that feels like a problem that's just keeping me up at night, my gut, and I'm just all over the place. How can I see that as an opportunity? Trust not in your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. We have to be willing to die if we really understand that. And these times, these, these things where there's an urgency and there's a panic and there's anxiety, God can be tilling the soil to bring about in you a harvest that you could have never imagined if we just are willing to say yes to what God is doing in our lives, even if we don't understand it. God, what are the instructions? What's next? Where do you want me to go? I will follow. I'll say yes. Father, um, time messes me up. Um, it's a tough thing for us to master and since it's a tough thing to master, it's a tough thing for us to be able to say to other people how they should do it. And I don't think it's one of those things that we're supposed to. And I just pray that we would all learn to seek you more. That our community, that, that these friends, these brothers and sisters, that we would all learn to discern your voice more clearly. That even if circumstances don't change, even if things scare us to death, that we'd be able to sense you, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that you are near, you are there, you will deliver, you will go with us. I just pray for light and guidance and illumination that we would know where to walk today, this week, this month. Just give us the resolve not to care about promoting our own life, but be willing to yield ourselves to you. That some of our desires and dreams might even die in the process. But that in your hands, you can bring about a harvest through that harvest either in our character, our growth, our ability to love and serve others, whatever it might be, Father, I just pray that you would take us and let us yield ourselves to you, knowing that you will prove yourself to be faithful. We pray that in Christ's precious name.